the contract you've entered into with somebody who draws internet cartoons is, to me anyway, distinctly not <laughs> to have your entire life then examined. Like, he's written a four-panel thing of an idea that he thinks is good. This doesn't mean that his entire life should be in the public square. Kia ora whanau and welcome to this episode of The Alicia Mackay Show. It is another brilliant chat today as we cover books I've been reading, surveillance capitalism. Do you make your own luck or are you a product of the world around you? Kurt Vonnegut novels, shouting at people on the street and ultimately an impassioned plea for all of you to stop undermining yourselves for goodness sake, appreciate how great you are and take that energy into the world. Enjoy everyone. Kia ora, good morning everybody and welcome to the Alicia Mackay Show for Friday the 29th of April. Unfortunately, I'm not speaking to those of you who usually tune in on Facebook because the Facebook police have locked me out. Now, it's not because I've been sharing photos of my bare nipples or expressing vaccination or political opinions, but rather that I can't remember my password. And the reason I can't remember my password is because I tried to do a really grown-up internet security-focused thing recently where I got all into LastPass. So I don't know how many of you guys use password repository programs like 1Password or LastPass, but I went through and Google's been telling me for probably a year that my password has been involved in a leak and that it's a shit password, which quite frankly is a bit judgy, but that's fine. Uh, And so I finally went through when I was procrastinating on something important that I should have been doing a month or two ago and really just went hard on the last pass, putting all my passwords in there. I've got long strings of characters. There's symbols. There's uppercase. There's lowercase. There's numbers. It's absolutely all over the place. Problem is I can't get into anything anymore. And so for the most part, it's working. It's kind of like when you tidy your room and then you can't find anything or you rearrange your pantry. It's a bit like that, but with passwords. And so, I don't know, Facebook is so secure now that it's trying to give me text messages and emails and location checking and two-step, three-step, eight-step verification and click through here and click back there. And so I, I can't, I can't get in. Anyway, good intentions gone awry. It is beautiful to have you with us this morning. If you are tuning in, please make sure to jump in the comments and let us know where you are tuning in from. I am in frosty but sunny looking Wellington this morning and I'm joined by producer Cam who, where are you Cam? I'm coming in from Wanaka this morning where it is uh, a nice sunny day in waiting and listening to your intro I was reminded of the time my brother Michael was worried about your account securities across various networks and as you mentioned there's a couple of platforms that help you govern your security one of them being 1Password and Mike asked you are you using 1Password and you're like oh yeah I've only got 1Password I use it for everything it's great. (laughs) (laughs) My fad of the week this week is being early for things and I'm quite excited about it. For a number of years now, I've been a person who thinks that I'm on time and early for things. I think I'm very organized and I'm just late to everything all the time. And it's a surprise to me. Like I feel like I'm being unnecessarily judged for it a lot of the time because I never intend to be late. I'm always surprised. And so I've had a couple of really awesome experiences this week 
of not just being on time for stuff, but being early. So my family and I went on holiday this week, if you can call it a holiday with three children. I often prefer to use the word trip. Anyway, I went on a trip this week down to Christchurch from Wellington with uh, Cam and the three kids. And we initially thought we had to be at the airport quite a bit earlier than we did. And on the Sunday morning, I said to Cam, look, why don't we just go that early anyway? Like, what if we just leave at that time anyway? Like, worst case scenario, we've got extra time at the airport. Now, I'm a Kuru member, hashtag Air New Zealand represent. Uh, so it's not as though time at the airport is going to be unpleasant. So we arrive at the airport comfortably with lots of time to spare. Head on up to the Kuru Lounge after we've checked in. Hang out there for over an hour. The kids are colouring in. We're eating snacks. I'm reading a book. I'm looking out the window at the planes. It's all very calm and organised. And then when it's time to fly, we just sort of smile and walk to the plane, right? So then yesterday I had to fly home. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to do it again. I'm going to be early again. And so I didn't have to fly until 10.30, but I told the children and sort of myself uh, that it was 10. And then I told everyone we had to be leaving the house by 9, which really was completely unnecessary. But again, we arrive at the airport. We've got an hour to spare. We just hang out, me and the kids. It was amazing. Now, some of you might be shocked to learn this, but on the Alicia Mackay show, what I am prone to do is promise to be here at quarter to eight in the green room with producer Cam and CB to talk about how we're going to run the show today. And what I inevitably do is send a text at four minutes to eight saying, sorry, just making a coffee. <laughs> and then turn up in the green room at two minutes to eight, holding a cup of coffee, totally surprised that I'm not there on time. They are less surprised. And so I'm really into this whole, what happens if we just get there early thing? And it reminds me of a book I read a few years ago, which oh, the guy's name's Richard someone, Richard Swanson, maybe. And the title of the book is Margin. And the author argues that we should be leaving a lot more margin in our lives than we currently do. And I think that lack of margin is one of the main reasons why I'm late to things. I don't leave enough space in between the things in my life to make it possible to be stress-free and unhurried when I arrive there. I'm always like, oh, if I could just get another load of washing on before I turn up and I'll take the dog out and I'll just reply to this email and, okay, now, now oh, I'm late. Weird. <laughs> that and it's a personality trait because I always assume that things are going to go really well for me and then I'm surprised when I can't find a park or my computer needs to update. Uh, but I think being early requires a certain amount of margin in your life and if you currently feel as though you don't potentially have enough margin in your life and you're wondering why you're late maybe that's it cam any thoughts a colleague uh, or a client of ours good friend cyril pupion has a phrase on time is late and i've worked with cyril for a while now and when he taught me that phrase as part of the work i was doing for him he very subtly not very subtly said cam maybe you might like to consider using this phrase <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, in your life and how you deal with things. And I haven't deployed it universally, but the places that I have, it's really, really changed things. And his mm. whole idea is if you turn up on time, you're not really giving yourself the best chance to be present, to succeed, and to show up in the way that you'd like to. So every time I've got something important coming up, I love to think to myself, on time is late. It's a great philosophy. Thanks, Cyril. And the feeling of just having that extra space to be like, I can actually relax and get ready for this and think about it a bit more. I mean, I'm quite new to this feeling, clearly, guys, but oh, I'm into it. So my fad of the week, being early for stuff. All right, 
I then want to run full pace into my Alicia Reads because I'm so excited about this novel. Cam, give me an intro, please. Cam is holding the book because immediately after I finished the book, I thrust it upon him and said, you must read this book. And so he's taken it with him to Wanaka to read. But this book is The Every by Dave Eggers. And this is actually a sequel to um, a really popular book called The Circle, which I think is being made into a series or something at the moment. This book is so good that I started reading it on Saturday afternoon and then I continued to read it on Sunday morning. And I made quite fast progress on it because I'm a speedy reader and I loved it. And when we arrived in Christchurch on Sunday afternoon at our friend's house, I walked in and I had sort of like, I don't know, one eighth of the book to go. And so I walked in and I was like, hey guys, I'm really happy to see you, but I just need an hour. It was a glorious example of completely breaking social convention for seeing dear (laughs) friends after about four months away. It was a delight. Oh, it's so good to be here. Just excuse me, I'm going to sit on your couch and put my head in a book for an hour. I'll see you when I'm done. (laughs) I regret nothing. What an impeccable book. It's so good. I'm so into Dave Eggers. I'm going to go and buy everything that he's ever written now. The book is essentially a novel that is about a really large and powerful social media-based company (laughs) that expands their reach further and further until they control so many aspects of society and the economy that it completely changes the way people live their lives. So it's this kind of dystopian what-if novel that is uncomfortably close to the truth. Um, It's a commentary on surveillance capitalism. It's a commentary on people's social habits well, I want to read the passage that caused you to burst into laughter in one of the early sections. And oh, It's also, before Cam reads the passage, it's also extremely funny. And you know that that is one of my top criteria in an author, is that they're funny. He's so funny. So the protagonist heads into the headquarters of the Every and discovers that capital P play was last year's management theory following multitasking, single tasking, grit, learning from failure, napping, cardio working, saying no, saying yes. The wisdom of the crowd is greater than trusting one's gut. Trusting one's gut is greater than the wisdom of the crowd. Viking management theory. Commissioner Gordon workflow theory. X teams. B teams. Embracing simplicity. Pursuing complexity. Seeking zemblanity. Creativity through radical individualism. Creativity through groupthink. Creativity through rejection of groupthink. Organizational mindfulness. Organizational blindness. Micro work. Macro sloth. Fear-based camaraderie. Love-based terror working while standing, working while ambulatory, learning while sleeping, and most recently, limes. Limes! <laughs> I love this passage for many reasons, not, not least its beautiful use of English, but also how alarmingly similar it is to a lot of the things you teach, Alicia. Could be that be one of the reasons why you found an affinity with this book? Honestly, I was reading it and I'm like, this is just so good. It's just all bullshit. Walking while ambulatory. Micro work. Macro sloth. <laughs> what is Viking management theory? I think the worst part of it is, I heard that and I was like, oh, I'm interested to know about my Viking management theory. <laughs> So good. So if you are looking for a novel to read, which is going to horrify you, make you feel mildly uncomfortable about your life choices, be extremely engaging and entertaining, then I highly recommend picking up a copy of The Every by Dave Eggers. Now, very briefly, because I haven't read the whole book because I was reading it at the library, uh, my second book recommendation for the week, I don't have the book because I read it at the library. Look, I printed the cover. Do you think I'm cute? Look, I literally printed the cover on my home printer and it's called The Trouble With Passion. And the author is Erin Seck, and she is an academic at the University of Michigan. 
And the book is quite academic, so it's worth me telling you at the outset. Like, it's more academic than I would usually enjoy reading in a nonfiction book. But it is such a good book. It's called The Trouble with Passion, and the strapline is How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality. Now, you might remember a chat that we had uh, on the Alicia McKay show a week or two ago around, I guess, a bit of a mini debate. Should we be trying to seek meaning or a primary sense of meaning through our work? And what are the potential dangers of that? Now, this book basically spells out what a bunch of those dangers are. It talks about how we've now kind of got this overarching cultural schema, particularly in um, in the educated classes and in liberal backgrounds, that our work should somehow align to a sense of purpose and passion. And it basically just unpicks um, from a whole bunch of angles from a social angle, it says, look, this is just such a good example of this individualistic self-fulfillment kind of mentality that is now the overarching thing in Western culture, as opposed to, you know, collective good or devotion to the nation or whatever. Um, but it also talks about all the ways that that can go wrong and all of the potential negative consequences of people fulfilling this passion purpose thing at work. One of which obviously is that employers can exploit that sense of work devotion and not pay people very well. I don't know if you've heard about the purpose um, penalty before, but it's essentially the argument that if you work in um, a field that's really meaningful to you or contributes to society, you just accept that you'll be poorly paid, which is messed up. Uh, But it also talks about how it really perpetrates um, inequality and that Actually, if you've got um, first-generation college students or university students who are trying to, you know, socially mobilise, economically mobilise, being made to feel bad or morally corrupt for pursuing economic improvement, which is the kind of dark side of this, do what you love, work for passion, is actually really negative. And that if you are already kind of rich and doing well, and then you decide to go and pursue a passion instead of your accounting degree, you'll probably be okay. Like the data suggests that in 10 years' time, you'll probably have a job and you will have been supported by this kind of higher floor of just having, you know, social networks, professional networks, family support. But that if you try and pursue passion and you're like, actually you were lucky to make it into uni because you're a bit broke and like having a tough time, your outcomes aren't good. And that actually what we think of as our passion is really strongly informed by what we've seen growing up, the hobbies that we understand, the pursuits that we understand, and that if we go headlong into that before we've opened our mind to other potential at work, we're actually just perpetrating this kind of very embedded class-based sense of what hobbies and pursuits are that we can even have. So she uses a term called choice washing that makes it look like it's individual choice, but actually it's just like structural forces we can't see. I'm going to be using the word choice washing a lot more going forward. So it's an extremely good book, The Trouble with Passion, Erin Seek. Pick it up, have a read. I didn't read the whole thing. I was at the library, um, but it was really, really bloody good. Cam? Absolutely love that idea, choice washing. And I think one of the interesting parts of our relationship coming from fairly different class and socioeconomic backgrounds is the realisation of how many things that we think are choices are just not at all. And there's so many assumptions that you make that you think are the result of an individual decision or because of some integrity or intentional decision you've made, especially when you're surrounded by people who are really similar to you, your only conclusion is this is normal or this is how we've chosen to be. And when you get exposed to completely different backgrounds, it's really humbling 
and the acknowledgement that you're a product of your environment much more than you are any of your own individual decisions to me is completely fascinating. Now, this is going to be a slightly cold throw, but this is a conversation I've had with CV about how you are so much a product of your circumstance more than you are any individual decision you make and that really we can't take credit for much of anything at all. Yeah, I don't know if there's such a thing as free will. Whoa, dropping the big bombs on the Alicia McKay show this morning. I don't believe in free will or I don't know if there is any. No, no, I can't not believe in free will because it's so integral to my personal philosophy to life that if I think I have no free will, like I'm just going to shrivel up and die. Um, however, I'm also a big fan of structural theories to explain basically everything, which is that, you know, we think we're a whole thing and we're like, no, I just wanted to call my daughter Charlotte and I just wanted to do burnouts and drink bourbon. It wasn't culturally expected of me, um, but it's not true. The burnouts, the bourbon and the Charlotte were all a product of what was happening around me that I was invisible to. Just me. And beneath that, the kind of chemical layer and how we make our decisions. So, um, you know, there's all these studies about judges giving harsher sentences if they haven't had lunch yet and never get surgery in the early afternoon. Like, all, all of this stuff is incredibly valid. So we're just kind of like bags of emotional hormones bashing around on the pinball levers of our structural and environmental factors, thinking we have a lot of free will, but actually we're just robots. One of my favorite books, which I, I know we don't have a Callum Reads, but the, uh, call this the inaugural Callum Reads segment, uh, is Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut. And that book is incredibly dense. It's sort of the first time you read it, it appears to be just all these random observations, but they do actually all tie together. And there's this amazing stream of consciousness to it all. It's The audiobook is read by... Um, John Malkovich incredibly well and he's the perfect person to uh, read that especially because uh, it has a lot of doodles in it from the author and so John Malkovich has to describe <laughs> the doodles to, to the listener which is always a delightful audiobook experience especially because there's a lot of quite abstract drawings that they just let John Malkovich <laughs> describe but the whole novel is he, he sort of perfected this incredible style of describing things as though you're an alien who's never seen anything on earth before. Wow. Uh, and the way that it talks about our motivation as being entirely chemical has just really stuck with me. There will be phrases like, you know, Dwayne Hoover took a little pill to uh, stop the bad chemicals in him disrupting his life that day. Uh, <laughs> and it's really good. And, and he goes insane. So the, the main character goes insane. And by the way, audience, it is impossible to spoil a Kurt Vonnegut book because he always spoils it himself within the first five pages. If you've <laughs> never read a Kurt Vonnegut book, he didn't really believe in tension. He believes in tension through telling you exactly what's going to happen and then having you still undergo that journey anyway. But the main character goes insane and in, in the peak of his madness, he's given a, a short story um, by a, a sort of Kurt Vonnegut stand-in who is this um, down-on-his-luck science fiction author who who writes these short stories and they just end up in um, porno magazines uh, because, and he doesn't know where they go and he just turns this stuff out into the ether. And there's this brilliant scene where he goes into a, um, a pornography bookstore and 
has to buy one of his own short stories back from this magazine. He goes up to the counter and tells the person quite unconvincingly that it's for an arts festival. (laughs) But it's a great book and I highly recommend all of Kurt Vonnegut's canon, but especially Breakfast of Champions. A lot of people start with Slaughterhouse-Five, which is his kind of famous war novel, but Breakfast of Champions is just the best. So what I love about that CV is this kind of, um, which I think is the key to being self-aware or externally aware full stop, is being able to come at something as though you've never seen it before or as though you're watching it in a movie. And so you and I quite enjoy doing that because we're dry and wry and honestly not very fun to drink coffee with, which is why it's usually just the two of us. But you know, before we went live this morning and I was telling you that I'd bought the art subscription for my television so that I can own a TV but also pretend I don't own a TV. Like, what a weird invention. Yeah, I can understand that. It's an aesthetic thing. I mean, the, those Samsung, the frames are, are beautiful devices. I used to have a subscription to a visual art service where it would be kind of motion graphics uh, that you could Oh, I remember this. The naked old lady with all the boobs that would come on every 40 seconds on the slideshow. Yeah, yeah. This was, this was <laughs> quite a... Um, uh, it was certainly a conversation piece at the party that I had it on the wall. It makes me think of that alien, um, That I don't know if that's still popular because I don't keep up with what's trending, but you remember those memes of the two aliens that would describe human activity in a way that made us giggle at ourselves? So they're one that's like, there are people coming over. We have to put away all our things so that they don't think we own any things before they get here. <laughs> yeah, that's it's exactly that style. I really like Nathan Pyle's work. I guess this is our news segment. Nathan Pyle had a brief flirtation with cancellation, shall we say, when um, a lot more about his personal life and and views came onto the internet where he's quite fundamentalist Christian. There was some stuff came out about some of his other behaviour. And I just thought I'm not really one way or the other with cancellation culture a lot of the time. Like I I can argue either side quite often. But this was one where... The contract you've entered into with somebody who draws internet cartoons is, to me anyway, distinctly not (laughs) to have your entire life then examined. Like, he's written a four-panel thing of an idea that he thinks is good. This doesn't mean that his entire life should be in the public square for an examination. I strongly agree. This is the point we were talking about celebrities and celebrity culture in Oscars a few weeks ago around like, why do we expect celebrities to be the moral pillars of society just because they like pretending to be someone else for their job? That one I, I have real trouble with. Yeah. And so something I was just thinking about is I've had a couple of unpleasant experiences in the last two days with my children where we've had people on the street shout things to or about them and I'd what the fuck man just linking it back to Nathan Pyle I'm like you can think whatever you like just don't hurt people by shouting those views at them so one of the experiences was walking through Cathedral Square late at night on a Wednesday night after dinner back to our car park and having a bunch of drunk dudes come through in a formation and one of them yell at us about the fact that my teenage daughter was wearing a crop top and a hoodie. I don't know. They were like, why would you let your daughter dress like that? Which I don't think drunk men realise, but that is an absolutely terrifying power play for a woman full stop 
and especially for a teenage girl. Like that is terrifying. And then last night I picked up Charlie, my middle child, from an event that she was at, which her and her friend had had to leave because an older teenage boy had turned up and started hassling them for being emo and telling them to slit their wrists and was shouting at them at night in a public space. Like, think whatever you like, but you don't get to yell it at others, you fuckwits. Oh, too strong for the Alicia Mackay show? <laughs> Possibly, but I mean, if, if you want to continue on that anger vein, there was a woman with a, a tamoko tattoo and who was taking her four kids to the playground in, in Havelock North and was asked to leave by these four other women because she was, quote, scaring the children. Um, oh. And that, that kind of overt racism, it's hard to believe that it still happens, but it did happen. And, well, that's and what I was thinking is. about our Cathedral Square moment. Like, I, I felt a little bit surreal about it. I was like, did that actually just happen? Are we still doing that in 2022? Like, I know we're in Christchurch. But are we still yelling at girls to tell them to dress differently? Are you yeah, fucking well, kidding me? Apart from anything else, it's incredibly conservative of drunk men to be like, put it away. Well, it was a bit odd because they followed it up with a quite contradictory comment. They were like, why would you let your daughter dress like that? And then followed it up with, ladies used to wear skirts. So it was a little bit confusing, actually. She was wearing like wide baggy jeans and a crop top and then like a hoodie that was unzipped like I wouldn't have called it provocative maybe it wasn't I don't know Amish enough oh very you mean, weird you mean advice roared across the town square by drunk men is not necessarily it wasn't coherent I can't believe it the people doing the yelling genuinely don't realize what a power play that is and how scary it is for the people that they're yelling at and so the, not that it should be on me to do it, but the couple of times that I've been in a situation where I've been yelled at or catcalled or whatever, which, by the way, every single woman listening to this has been. We've been yelled at out of cars. We've been yelled at by people on the street. We've had nasty comments from people as we've walked down Cuba, Cuba Mall. Like, this is just, this is our life. Um, as being able to stop and say, hey, I know you think that's funny, but do you know how scared it makes me when a bunch of dudes yell out at me as a woman and I'm on my own and I'm walking and I don't feel safe anymore. I don't think you want me to feel unsafe, but that's how I feel when you do that. And I've never had a negative reaction to saying that. I've always had like, oh, fuck, yeah, sorry. We thought we're, we're just being dicks. We didn't realise it was so bad. So I think it's not helpful to demonise people that behave in such socially destructive and personally offensive ways necessarily because, as we talked about before, the products of their environment, somewhere along the line, they've been led to believe that it's okay or funny to do that. And so if we want to change that, we can't do it by being like people who behave in a way that we don't like are evil. We have to go, hmm, at what point did we send the message that that was all right? And how do we start to shift that conversation? The accountability has to come from the peers. So there's been a few examples of other situations I've been in where someone's had their bum pinched in a bar or whatever. And the confrontation can't come from an antagonist or the the person on the receiving end of it. It's got to come from the perpetrator's peer. That's easily the most powerful way to to change behaviour, make your peers deem it unacceptable, which is why I love the ads that have people mocking uh, drivers who are driving aggressively or unsafely or, or have their mate step in when harassment's happening rather than have it coming from the victim because it's much more powerful to have that behaviour guided by your peer rather than in a confrontation. I'm just surprised that, like, the first one didn't surprise me. Like, a middle-aged dude in Christchurch, sorry, Christchurch, um, who's had a few too many beers hollering something was less surprising to me. Uh, but a 14-year-old kid in Wellington in 2022 
behaving in the same way last night was a bit of a shock too because I just sort of thought like, oh, we haven't gotten much better, have we? Like, that's a shame. That's starting early again, all over again. It's another generation of that. Bugger. Anyway, we need to pick up the um, need to pick up the positivity on this one. I'm going to swing it with a story. Good. I'm going to swing the mood with a story. So in complete contrast to that experience, I had the exact opposite experience. So Alicia and I parted ways in Christchurch and I flew to Queenstown to hang out with my friends. And I arrived during the middle of the day and the bus to Wanaka, which is about an hour away from Queenstown, wasn't coming for four hours. And I knew that in advance. So I thought, I'm going to hitch a ride if I can. So before I even left Christchurch, Harriet, the seven-year-old, and I made a sign saying I was going to Wanaka. And it was a beaming sunny day. And I walked out of the airport with a big smile on my face and hopeful for what might happen, knowing that there was a backup bus in four hours' time if it didn't go well. And I didn't make it one minute walking with my sign before a car pulled over and said, oh, we're going to Wanaka. Do you want to jump in? And it was a beautiful moment of just serendipity and joy. And I jumped in the car and chatted with Angelique and Bill from Auckland for the whole hour in a really animated, beautiful conversation that it was just a, a delightful encounter with strangers, kind strangers who were helping someone out. And I was thinking about how lucky it is that I get to do that. So in the context of having experienced harassment and a lack of safety for Alicia's kids and, and hearing that and how painful it is, recognising how lucky some of us are, or maybe all of us if you have the bravery, or there's a whole lot of gender privilege here and various other privilege too, but how great it is to experience the kindness of strangers in that way. And I was reflecting on making your own luck and how that works. So putting the qualifiers out of the way for the moment, I was thinking about how do you make luck? How do you give yourself room to enjoy or give people room to step in with their kindness and help people out? And in the context of hitchhiking, there's a few things I think that helped me get a lift so quickly. One of them was I had a sign, a big obvious sign. If I'd stood there with my thumb out and no one knew where I was going, the car that picked me up probably wouldn't have. I wasn't on one single straight road. I was in the middle of a town. It could have been going anywhere. So the sign was a really clear indicator to the people who were going to Wanaka that I was going there too. The second was I was quite well dressed. In the morning, uh, I'd thought to myself, I'm going to be hitching this afternoon. I want to look like I don't smell. And when you're picking up hitchhikers, you're kind of rolling the dice on how it's going to go. And so I was dressed in a fancy new op shop outfit that we'd bought the day before. And it was a nice sunny day. So I looked, I looked pretty safe as a, as a passenger. And then the final thing was, I was standing in a spot that made it okay for the people who eventually picked me up to drive past do a U-turn, take a second look at me before deciding they were going to pick me up, doing another U-turn and then pulling over and saying, hey, we're going to Wanaka. So there were a few things that made the room for the luck to happen. If I was somewhere where it was on the side of a highway, they were going 100 k's an hour, they couldn't see a sign or they didn't have room to stop, they wouldn't have. The luck came because there was a little bit of intention put into where they were going to be able to make the decision, decide to do it, and to do so safely. And then the hour chat we had was wonderful. Turns out they just had a joyride in a helicopter over Cecil Peak in Queenstown, so they were buzzing and high and full of the milk of human kindness, and they wanted to share that around, and they, they were lucky enough to pick up someone who was very keen to share that excitement with them. So it was quite a symbiotic, joyful exchange, and it was a bit of an antidote to the, the sadness that we'd had only the night or day before with uh, Alicia's daughter. So that sort of stood in contrast and that's been, that's been the idea that's been flowing around my head. And you were early. And I was early. I had four whole hours 
to leave the luck to happen. I was quite willing to wait on the side of the road for a whole hour before giving up on the idea. And I think the beautiful part about that is there's something about it's not karma because I don't know how this could possibly actually work or if it's confirmation bias or any number of invisible factors, but I was radiating good energy. It was a sunny day. I didn't care if I got a lift or not. I was a good person to pick up. My, my energy was good. And I don't know how the people in the car could tell that, but it can't be a coincidence that I was only holding up my sign for one minute before I got a ride. Or it could be. Or it could be. And if it didn't happen, I would have written it off and not thought about it again because of the positive <laughs> experience. I've chosen that to confirm, like to affirm a whole bunch of intentional decisions I thought I made to make me think that what I was doing was worth doing. And it turns out that in this instance, through luck or coincidence, it was. I'm going to pat myself on the back for it. If it had gone horribly wrong and no one had picked me up, I would have written that off as uh, Queenstown being full of Auckland snobs who don't want to share their affluence. Yeah, or it was, you know, not nice weather or it's not your fault. Absolutely. Now, to bring the show home, I've got a clip that I'd like to play. So we've had our first Ooh. ever piece of audience feedback sent in. So I've received a voice message from a listener. So what I'm going to do is play a clip, uh, which is an excerpt of a show from either last week or the week before. Alicia, I'd, I'd like to ask you to hold off on your response until the end of the clip, please. And so here's here's a viewer with a question. Okay. This is explaining to me this theory really quickly why I don't have any friends and that the only friends I do have are ones I've had for 20 years because I was not a carefree uni student who was out three or four nights a week. I had kids from 16. And so I've only had a limited amount of time to spend with people. And if I think about it, my best mates in the whole world are ones I've known since I was between 14 and 16 years old. And that all of a sudden makes a lot of sense. Cameron, I'm just sending you a quick voicemail because I've been listening to the latest episode of Alicia's podcast and I did hear her say that she has made no new friends nor any friends in the last 25 years and that feels particularly awkward to me considering I felt like I met her recently recently and became quite good friends with her. I guess the only conclusion I can make is that we're either not friends or she's lying on her very own podcast. I know we haven't spent 200 hours together, but I would like some clarity around this friendship level. Oh, shit. I'm sorry, Shay. I love you. This is the this is the self-fulfilling prophecy of saying things like that, isn't it? I think both you and I, Alicia, consider ourselves outsiders and therefore sometimes make ourselves outsiders. So I've got a couple of responses to that one, Cam. First of all is to say that I have made some excellent friends in the last few years uh, and Shay is one of them. Really sorry, Shay. <laughs> I love you very much. Uh, but the second one is uh, just to comment on CV's immediate response there, which is like, why do we say these things and do them to ourselves? And I was immediately thinking of a dinner that we were at about two years ago when about three glasses of wine in, I made the comment that I don't have any close female friends just offhand in two of and, my... And the two of your closest female friends around the table were <laughs> rightly quite offended by that. But yeah. Um, you know, you, you're a big fan of failing fast, and um, that was a fast fail, that dinner. And they've never talked to me again. No, just kidding. Uh, but, yeah, look, I reckon what I would like to reflect on with that one is just to pick up on CV's point, how unhelpful it is to perpetrate 
negative stories about yourself and to say them out loud and make them true. Because if I walk around saying I don't have any friends or I haven't made any friends in the last decade, that can't be anything but true. And actually, it's bullshit. Absolutely. And the the disservice you do yourself by doing so is not only frustrating to you, it's really frustrating to the people who know and love you. And what comes across as either humble, like you're trying to represent a humbleness or a lack of arrogance or something. But what it really does is undermine the relationships that you've built up that mean a lot to a lot of people. So the opposite of the tall puppy thing is you're doing people a disservice by not leaning into the love you're being given. Oh, strong and great. And I'm going to wrap up the show on that with a with a bit of a summary comment, which is, you know, one of the things that Cam tells me off for regularly is when I'm live, um, keynote at a conference or working with clients, and I unnecessarily undersell myself or cut myself down as in the attempt to be humble. I'm like, I don't really have a job or I just make this up or whatever, which is bullshit. I work really hard and um, my work's really valuable. And so it's really unhelpful, not just for me, but for other people, for me to not hold my own contribution with reverence. And so if I was urging all of you out there who have stuck with us on the Alicia Mackay Show uh, to do one thing, it would be to appreciate the value that you bring to the world, to others' lives, uh, to your families, to your friends. Treat every day like a birthday. Birthdays are my favorite ritual because all they are saying is, we're so glad you exist and were born that every year we're going to celebrate it by giving you a cake and some presents. And that attitude that birthday brings, which is you are so important and valuable that it's worth celebrating. Can we just bring that in every goddamn day? Like, can you just walk around today, please, everybody, and be like, fuck, I'm good. Man, it's great that I exist and I'm doing all these cool stuff for people. The world would be shit if I wasn't here. Can you just do that? Can you be a bit fig jam today, everybody, please? What a beautiful sentiment to end on. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Have yourselves a wonderful day. And if anyone did want to send in another voice message as a conversation starter or a point of rebuttal, please do so. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, bye, everybody. Bye.